But mostly we don't, many folks don't realize this, but Jesus was a rabbi. And, and of course we know him, he is, he is the son of God. He is our savior. He's the second person of the Holy Trinity. And, and, and we know Jesus in all these glorious ways, but we don't know Jesus as Jesus the rabbi. And that's what I like to bring out in our teachings, that, G, that Jesus is a rabbi. His, his apostles, the disciples, called him rabbi. The Pharisees recognized him as rabbi. And, and I, want you to, I also want you to see him in, in a rabbinic light as well. And so many of the concepts that Jesus taught don't make sense to us. You know, when we think about end of days, we think about the end of the world. But the end of days is not really the end of the end of the world the way we know it's not the end of the world it's not something that's negative it's something that's positive so when jesus speaks about the word that uses the term end of days end of days is a rabbinic term it's it's used by the rabbis and it's in it's in reference to the reign of messiah and how the world's going to change during his reign does that make sense so just a sister margaret posted here jesus the rabbi now, the scripture that I put in the blog of this week is taken from Revelation 11:19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, voices, pearls of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. What we see here, we, we, we see God's temple in heaven, and we see the heavens opened. And John the Beloved, the author of the book of Revelation, was caught up into heaven during his days of being imprisoned on the island of Patmos. And what I want you to see here is that he was, that he, he was, he was seeing the earth from God's perspective. He was seeing, he was seeing heaven. He was experiencing the glorious and risen Lord. And I mean, can you imagine seeing Jesus in his resurrected form, seeing him in heaven, his eyes a flame of fire, um, a, a, out of his mouth came a double-edged sword, and it, it just appeared that he, he he appeared as burning bronze. I mean, just just a, a, an amazing revelation of, of of Jesus from the perspective of heaven. And when we read the book of Revelation, you know, we're often confused about Revelation. It's a book that we think we cannot understand. But what I want you to know is, if it's it would not be written in the Word if God did not want us to understand it. And God wants us to seek into the, the, the end of days. He wants us to study. He wants us to really seek him to understand this book. And the, so many Christians ignore the book of Revelation because it, 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 they've been mistaught and they think this book is fearful. But this book was given to the persecuted church to give the persecuted church hope. And I want you to know that the church today is more persecuted than all of history. It is so persecuted today, and this book is a book of hope. So you should not be discouraged as you read this book. This book should give you hope. And my goal is to, uh, the, the Lord willing, is to, is to go through the entire book of Revelation. And so one of the signs of the end of days is the temple connection. The Jewish people experienced four exiles in their history. The four exiles began with the Babylonian exile, which was led by King Nebuchadnezzar. The second exile was the, known as it was the exile known as the the uh, the, uh, the the Medio Persian exile. Then we, the third exile is the Greek exile, which was led by Alexander the Great. And the fourth exile is the Roman exile. And we're going to talk a little about each of these exiles tonight. But each of these exiles have something to do with a temple connection, because whenever the temple was was desecrated, whenever the temple was destroyed, the Jewish people went to exile. So whenever, uh, when the first, uh, what, what did King Nebuchadnezzar do? He destroyed the walls of the city. 
of Jerusalem, and then he destroyed the temple and burned it, burnt it all to the ground. And, he, and before that, he took all the treasures of the temple uh, into captivity, into exile in Babylon, and he took the Israelites into 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 exile. So and so every time every time we see a destruction of the temple, we see the Jewish people going into exile. We see the first we see the first exile with the Babylonian uh, the Babylonian exile. And then we see the second exile with, with, with you know actually we'll go into more detail later so I won't repeat them but um, the, the every every time the temple is destroyed it's at it's the glory of God going into exile and even before these four exiles that we're going to talk about today let's talk about the exile of mankind the very first exile took place when Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden. Adam was placed into that garden along with his wife Eve. They were placed into that garden to 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 protect God's glory, and, and they were in a they were performing a priestly type of service. If you were to ask me who was the first priest recorded in the Bible, I would tell you that that Adam was the first priest, and the Bible tells us that they performed that they they that they were placed in the garden to take care of it to till it. That service that they performed, the tilling they performed, the gardening they performed was not an earthly form of gardening because they were placed into a heavenly garden and they performed priestly service within that garden. But once they disobeyed God by partaking of the forbidden fruit, then they were punished and exiled from the Garden of Eden. And they were, they were, they were expelled from this heavenly place that we call the Garden of Eden and they were placed into the world where, where, where we all live. And so they were exiled from God's glory. They were exiled from God's presence. And the purpose of creation is to restore mankind to have that glory, to have that temple connection once again. Does that make sense, everyone? So tonight, my, my goal is to bring you into a temple connection and to con reconnect all of us to God's glory. Now, we have no temple standing today in Jerusalem. The temple was was destroyed in 70 A.D., but the the temple that we, that we do have is our bodies. You know, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So, for every one of us on this line that's a believer, you have received Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, and the and the Holy Spirit lives inside of our physical temple. So, you you are each and every one of us, each and every one of you is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and His presence abides inside of you. And, and what I invite you to do is to uh, is to really Make your your body a place that's hap that's habitable, that's hospital, hosp sorry, that God's presence can inhabit, that God wants to fill you. You know, it's up to you to decide how much of God you want in your life. And it, it, and if you choose to to live a life that's full of sin, that's full of worldliness, well, guess what? You you are going to limit the Holy Spirit's involvement in your life. But if you want God to truly use you. You want God to you want you want God to fill even your nightlife with dreams and visions, and you desire God to be part of everything in your life, and you want God to use you in the ministry. You want God to use you in the gifts of of intercession, in, in the gifts of of healing, in the, in in uh, all, all the working of the Holy Spirit. Then you must learn how to submit your body and bring your flesh into subjection to the Holy Spirit, and allow God to do with you what He wills to do. Amen. And that means that twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, you're you're living under the under God's glory, and you allow the Holy Spirit to have reign in your being. Now, as we continue here. I'm going to call this section Seeing Through Glass Dimly. 
I'm going to ask you to repeat after me. Seeing through gla glass dimly. And 1 Corinthians 13, 12 and 13 say, says, For now we see in a glass dimly, or we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. And we're, we're going we're gonna to pause here for a second. Um, you know, one thing about prophecy is, especially when the Holy Spirit reveals prophecy through the Word, and the entire Bible is prophecy, is when we, when we look at prophecy, we only understand and comprehend things in part. We only see things in a dim manner. For those of you that have received prophetic words from, from prophets and prophetesses, you know, no prophet's going to reveal the entire will of God for your life. And in fact, no prophet can see your entire, can, can see God's plan for your entire life. They only see in parts. They see through a glass dimly. So they only see what God is allowing them to see and, 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 and they, they, they can, they can convey to you what, what God is showing them. And so in, as you progress it through life, you're going to start understanding your ministry more fully. And, and, and so it's always like you're, you're always on this walk of discovery. And God reveals things to you little by little by little. Because and, and, God will always be transformed into God's image. And we will, not, we, will, we will not know the fullness of God's image for our life until, we, until it's all finished, until we complete our mission here upon this earth. And the same thing goes when we study biblical prophecy. You know, I have been studying biblical prophecy ever since I became a believer, probably um, age 12, I think 12, 13 years old. And I, and I remember I, I used to spend so, so much time watching um, all, all these different ministers that, that, that really focused on end time prophecy. Hal Lindsey was among them. And I, and I, I, li I listened to about three, four different uh, 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 preachers that, that focused on prophecy. And, the, and none of them agreed on anything. They all had different opinions. And often I was so frustrated. I go, Lord, I really want to understand end times, but I'm not getting it. I'm, 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 more, I'm more confused now than a year ago. And, and I was, and I had been frustrated for, 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 for many, many years. But you know what? I think God allows this frustration because He wants us to hunger and to seek after Him. He really wants us to seek after the deep things of God. I want you to think about different projects you've worked on in life. You know, whether in home, whether in the workplace, you know, how much time you, you focus to make things work. Or if you're a child, you're building a Lego set or you're building something or you're building a model airplane. I mean, how, how, how much time you spend to build something and to get things right and to really bring to fruition what you've set your heart to do. You know, if, if you spend that much time and focus on things in the world, how much more emphasis should we put on the things of God? And so God doesn't make everything plain to us because he wants us to seek after truth. And he's going to reveal things, things to us in part. You know, I've studied so many different rabbinic commentators on what they say about end times. And you know what? For every single verse I read, I'll read about two, three, four different opinions that contradict with one another. And I believe the reason is because we understand prophecy in part. I do not believe that we're going to understand the fullness of end times until after it's already come to, into fruition. Let me give you an example. There's a scripture in the book of Esther where, where um, Esther's husband, King Ahasuerus, asked Esther, what, what should I do for you? 
And what does Esther ask? She asked for the she asked for the hanging of, of the ten sons of the hanging of the ten sons of Haman. And guess what? That was done. And then the king comes to Esther again and asks her, What more should I do for you? And what does Esther ask? She asked for the hanging of the ten sons of Haman. And this is a scripture that has puzzled rabbis for, for you know, for I don't know, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen hundred years. It did not make sense. Why is she asking for the hanging of ten sons of Haman that are already dead? It doesn't make sense. Well, the rabbis didn't understand until after World War II and after the Nuremberg trials and the hanging of ten Nazi leaders did they finally understand that Esther was not asking for the hanging of Haman's ten sons the second time. She was asking for the hanging of ten future sons of Haman to be hung in the future. And that prophecy was fulfilled when the ten Nazi leaders were tried for crimes against humanity and they were tried and convicted and ten and, 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 and they, 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 they were hung upon they were hung upon the, the gallows. Who would ever have thought of that coming into fruition? But you know what? The rabbis did not understand the prophecy until after it was fulfilled. So what I want you to know is we, we are not we are not going to understand the fullness of the prophecies of Daniel, of Zechariah, even Genesis, uh, and uh, and Revelation until after it's all done. So I believe we'll, we will be studying these prophecies in eternity. I believe after the rapture, we're, we are going to be studying these prophecies. I'm telling you, because nothing is in, in the Bible just there to fill space. Everything is, is prophetic. You know, the, the first five books of the Bible we call the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Do you know that when, that when you study the five books of Moses, that, that you, will you will encounter all the holy names of God? All of his holy names are in the first five books of the Bible. And I read somewhere from one of the commentators that the entire, the entire Torah from Genesis 1-1 to the very last verse of Deuteronomy is one continuous name of God. I mean, I mean can, can you imagine that? I mean, that's how holy the Word of God is. It's so holy, and as Vanessa just said, it's, it's, it's just amazing. And God's Word is so holy, we are going to be studying God's Word for all eternity. And I'm telling you, it's, and, and we're going to go from revelation, from revelation to revelation. We're going to go from glory to glory to glory. And, and the takeaway from what we just studied here is prophecy is not clear, it, it is not plain until it has passed. And one thing that prophecy will do is, prophecy, true prophecy is not going to bring you into fear. True prophecy will reveal the love of God. Did you all hear that? True prophets will reveal the love of God. Even through all the prophecies of Jeremiah and all the woes that he prophesied, it always ended with hope. It always ended with repentance. It always ended with restoration. So when you, when you hear a word from a true prophet, it's not going to bring you into a place of despair. It's going to bring you into a place of hope. Look at um, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. So faith, hope, love, abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And God is bringing you into a place of love and the love of God being revealed to you. Now let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Make love your aim. Earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. But you know what? Love is our aim. Love is our aim. And, and the more love you walk in, the greater degree of the gifts of the Holy Spirit you're going to walk in. 
the greater gifts are 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 are, are going to be revealed to you. But let love, let Hesed become your aim. Now you may ask a question: Why are we going through these difficult times? You know, I believe this COVID nineteen virus is is part of end time events. I believe COVID nineteen is 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 God's call to mankind to repentance. And you may ask, why did God allow this? Well, you know what? Sometimes God has to turn up the temperature to cause us to do good. And sometimes God God doesn't create God did not create coronavirus. That's a man made virus. God did not create it. God God does not create any virus. But but what God but God will allow these things to to cause us to return to Him. And sometimes the only way we are going to return to God is through going through the fire. And this is a time for the world to wake up. This is a time for the church to wake up. This is a time for politicians to wake up. This is a time for preachers to, to, to wake up. This is a time that we all return to God wholeheartedly and, 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 and to seek Him with all of our heart, with our entire being. Because we, we want to walk with God fully. Amen? And God is ultimately, God is ultimately calling us to a, 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 um, a temple connection and He wants us to connect with Him. This is no longer a time for us to live compromising lives. This is no longer a time for us to live in a way that does not bring God glory. This is a time that we that we become completely sold up to God. Because you know, we are living in the days very, very soon the Antichrist is going to be revealed. Very soon the mark of the, the beast is going to be revealed. Very soon the day is going to come where mankind will not be able to buy or sell without receiving the mark of the beast. And this is a time that we we need to repent. All the technology that's needed for Antichrist to come on the scene is already here. You know, I mean, the, the, all the technology Antichrist need needs is already here. With all the satellites that are that are in, in low orbit, all the technology in your smartphones, it's already here. You know, all the I mean, whether you you you, you, you want to be private or not, nothing is private. Every single everything's already being tracked. And and uh, your your position is al is always known. There is something that we can't hide hide from. So the technology is already here for Antichrist to come on the scene. But I do believe that the church will be caught up to meet Christ Jesus in the sky before the Antichrist is revealed to the world. And as we go through these series here, we're going to talk about the war of of Gog and Magog. And I want you to know it. I want you to know that. Parts of the War of Gog and Magog have already taken place, because Adolf Hitler and the Nazi Party had a great had a great deal to play with with with, with that prophecy coming coming into fruition. But there is going to be an end time Antichrist that is going to be revealed. So we we have been in the end of days uh, since since around 1948, since Israel became a nation. Now remember, I told you God is calling us to connect with Him. Uh, I want to. Uh, I'd like you to write down Jeremiah thirteen eleven, and it says, "For as the girdle cleaveth to the loins of a man, so as a garment cleaves to a person's skin, so I have call, I have I have caused to cleave unto me the whole house of Israel, and the whole house of Judah, saith the Lord, that they may be unto me for a people and for a name and for a praise and for a glory, but they would not hear." See, 
one of the purposes of trials, one of the reasons that we that we go through persecution, one of the reasons why we even experience COVID-19 is that we can return to God wholeheartedly. Wholehearted return to God. And you know what? When you come into that deep relationship with Jesus, you're not going to fear what's going to take place in the world. Because even at, uh, you know, even as we cleave to him, we're cleaving to Jesus, we're cleaving to our bridegroom, we're going to have that blessed assurance that we are going to be protected from the plagues that are, that are yet to hit the earth. And um, how many of you are curious, just to, just, just to help me out here, how many of you are curious or, or hungry to know more about end times? And if you are, just please, you know, just, please just type it on the screen here. I'm telling you, God is calling all of us to return to Him. You know, uh, and this concept of the end of days is not a new concept. It's not just something that people began to desire recently. It has been desired. Uh, people have inquired about it ever since the beginning. Even Adam was expecting the coming of a Messiah, and Moses expected the coming of Messiah. This has been this has been an expectation since the beginning of time. And look at what look at what even Jacob. Jacob's 12 sons were expecting the coming of Messiah. Look at Genesis 49 verse 1. And Jesus lay on his deathbed and he had a secret to tell his sons about the redemption. He had a secret to tell his sons about the end of days. And there's a lot of rabbinic argument or discussion about what Jacob planned to tell his sons. So let's read Genesis chapter 49 verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall befall you in the days to come. Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall befall you in the days to come. And so, what the sons of J Jacob expected, they expected their, their father, father to, to tell them when Messiah was going to come. And when the when the end of times was going to take place, but as you read through the verses of Genesis forty nine, which which we will not do tonight, I've actually I've done this in a teaching in the past, which you which you can find on my YouTube channel. We, we would have expected Jacob to tell the sons about future events, but you know what? He didn't tell them about the future events. He didn't tell them about the four exiles their descendants would experience. He didn't tell them about the, the gas chambers in Nazi Germany. He didn't tell them that there were going to be 3,500 years uh, uh, um, uh, plus left before the coming of Messiah. He didn't tell them all these things. What he did do was he told each of the tribes, not all the tribes, but many of the tribes, he told them of the pitfalls they would experience along the way. He told them about their character flaws. He told them what areas that they, they needed to refine their character. And that's what God is telling us. We don't, we don't need to spend so much time focusing on the date when Messiah is going to come. Because you know what? Nobody has guessed it right. Every single person that has tried to guess the date of the coming of Messiah has gotten it wrong. We've had great rabbinic rabbis that have predicted dates, and those dates came and passed. We've had Christians comment, uh, uh, comment on when Messiah is coming, and every single person has gotten it wrong because no man knows the day and the hour when Messiah is going to return. So the purpose of, in teaching you 
this series is not to tell you when Messiah is coming because I don't know, and I'm not trying to calculate when he's coming. I just believe it's gonna. I believe it's gonna happen in my lifetime, but I don't. I don't know when it's gonna take place. I have no idea when it's going to take place. But one thing I do know is that all the signs are in place for Messiah to return. So what is delaying the coming of Messiah? You know what? It's us. It's Messiah will not return until our repentance is complete. And if Jacob would have revealed to his sons the, the date of the coming of Messiah, you know what? That would that probably would have led the sons and to 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 not really work on living godly lives, because you know what if I know if if I know I have thirty five hundred years to get my life right with God or my, for my people to get their lives right with God, then wait I'll just wait till an hour before to get to repent and get my life right with God. So sometimes God does not reveal things to us to keep us expecting and and to cause us to live a life that's worthy of our calling that we live every single moment of our lives with expectation of christ coming and that we live our lives in a way that lord i know you can return 10 seconds from now so let me get my life right 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 now lord i'm harboring unforgiveness against so and so lord let me get it right right now that we always live our lives with the earnest expectation that christ jesus will call us up in a, in, in the next second or so does that make sense so in order for Messiah to return, repentance must take place. And I'm telling you, repentance is taking place in the earth. And it's true, not everyone's going to repent because God will not take away our free will. But you know what, but as many as possible, as many as are called, will repent. As Zechariah 8.19 says, and this, this is the, the month that we're in right now, the fourth month. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month. We are in the fourth month of the Hebrew calendar right now, the month of Tammuz. And the fast of the fifth month, which is the next month in the Hebrew calendar, the month of Av. And see, God, and I won't read the rest of it, but what God, God is calling us to a fast. And it's not just a fast of abstaining from, from food and drink. This is also a fast of repentance. To, to, to repent and to seek God whole Heartedly. I'm not going to focus on the 17th day of Tammuz and the ninth day of Av tonight. I'm not going to focus on, on, the, on, on these three weeks, but um, this is something that, that I've taught on before and I, and I will teach over the next few weeks. But what, what I do want you to know that this three-week period from the 17th day of Tammuz, of the, which is the fourth month, to Tisha B'Av, which is the ninth day of Av in the fifth month, these are, this is a three-week period, 21-day period of of of, 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 of um of um of, re of of weeping of repenting of intercession because during this three during this three week period countless calamities have been experienced by the Jewish people for example the first calamity recorded on the first 17th of Tammuz was when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the first set of 10 commandments the the two stones and what what were the, what, were the, what were the Israelites doing? They they were they were they were worshiping and dancing around a golden calf. And when Moses saw that from the mount, he destroyed the first set of ten commandments. And God was about to destroy the people. And then after, through Moses' intercession, uh, God repented of destroying the people. There's a lot more detail to that, but I don't want to focus on that teaching tonight. And then. There were other calamities that took place on future 17th of Tammuz. 
because the Israelites opened the door to to attack from the enemy. The walls of the first temple were breached on a 17th of Tammuz, I think around 586 or 587 BC. The walls of the second temple were, were, were breached on the 17th of Tammuz, around 6970 AD. And then if you if you count forward three weeks on the ninth day of Av, um, on the on the very first recorded calamity of the ninth day of Av on Tisha B'Av, was when the ten spies, ten of the twelve spies, returned from Canaan with a negative report of the land of Israel, of the land of Canaan, as it was called at the time, and 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 that became a day of calamity for the Jewish people as well. And guess what happened on that very same day on the ninth of Av? Guess what took place? The first temple and the second temples were both destroyed on the ninth of Av. And during this three-week period, many of the calamities were experienced by the Jewish people. For example, uh, I believe around 1492, uh, maybe off in the year, uh, the Jews were expelled from Spain by King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. And we also, and, and, and another, and, uh, also another calamity that took place was the Jews were expelled from England. Uh, I think around the year uh, year twelve hundred or something. I don't remember the I don't, I don't remember the years, but uh, um, but it was in that century. And we've seen, and even the Nazi Party arose to power during that three week period. World War One began during that three week period, and World War Two began because of unresolved issues from World War One. So all these calamities have hit the Jewish people during this three-week period, and that's why this three-week three period is a time of mourning and weeping and repentance and, seek, and seeking God during this three-week period that these calamities will never be experienced by the Jewish people ever again. Thank you, Sister Margaret. 1492, Jews were expelled from Spain. And so the question that I've asked and the question that's been posed is why hasn't Messiah come yet? And the one reason is, one opinion is, it's because our repentance is not complete yet. And the next question I want to ask you is, when will the end of days occur? You know, we always think of the end of days as being a, a fixed time. But you know what? It's not a fixed time. And you actually type this, you can type this, type this on the screen if you like. The end of days is not a fixed time, but it's a deadline. Remember I shared with you, um, of probably about two, three weeks ago, that the very last year that Messiah can return or come is in the year 6000. Right now, we are in the year 5780 on the Hebrew calendar. That means it has been 5,780 years since the creation of Adam. And so the very last moment that Messiah will come is the year 6000. So that's the so that's the deadline for the coming of Messiah. That's the deadline, the year six thousand. But God, but that doesn't mean he's going to come at the year six thousand. We believe he's going to come a lot sooner. So the 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 the, the fixed deadline, or the, de not the the it's not a fixed time, but the deadline is the year six thousand, which is a little over two hundred years from now. But Messiah is going to come much sooner than that. And, and but no man knows the day or the hour. We just know that he's gonna that he's he's gonna come um, very soon, and it and it will happen in the generation that Israel becomes a nation, and Israel became a nation in the year 1948. Don't, uh, please don't ask me how long a generation is. I don't know the answer, but I but I do know that we're living in the days of the coming of Messiah. So how can we hasten or quicken the coming of Messiah? 
We do it through prayer, through study of God's word, and through acts of loving kindness. We do this through study of God's word, we do this through prayer, and we do, the, we do this through acts of loving kindness. Now, do you know why the second temple was destroyed? It wasn't because of idolatry. It was destroyed because of baseless hatred between Jews. That means there was hatred between different people among the Jewish community, and they didn't hate each other for any reason. They didn't hate each other because of property or, or um, things have gone wrong in business or whatever. They, they, they just hated each, each other for no, for no reason, for, for, for no valid reason. And the rabbis teach us the, the reason why God allowed the destruction of the second temple was because of baseless hatred. The first temple was destroyed for, for other sins, such as idolatry and, and, um, and, 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 and sexual perversion and other things. But the second temple was, was destroyed because of baseless hatred. And then I want to bring another point across is the three requirements for the I'm going to I'll give you the title first the three requisites for entering the land. See God gave Israel three requirements when they possessed the land of Israel. And and this was carried and this was this was this and we'll we'll talk a little bit about this. The the first requisite or first requirement was to appoint a king. And we all know the first king over, appointed over Israel was King Saul. The second requisite was to, exter was to exterminate Amalek. And the third requisite is to build the, the holy temple in Jerusalem. These are the three requisites upon entering the land of Israel. So the first requisite is build, appoint a king. Number two, exterminate Amalek. And number three, to build the temple. So number one, to appoint a king. Israel did that through Samuel when Samuel appointed King Saul as the first king over Israel. So that was fulfilled. The second requisite was to exterminate Amalek. And that's what, how God used King David and that's how God used um, King Saul it, what were, what were in the battles against Amalek. And this is where Saul failed. Because Saul was commanded by God through prophet Samuel to completely wipe out all the Amalekites. And Saul disobeyed God and let King Agag live. He let the king of the Amalekites live and, let his, and, and left the best of the spoil he kept alive. He disobeyed God. And because of that sin and because of that dis disobedience, he lost kingship. The third requisite was to build the temple. And that is what King David desired to do. But God... Uh, through Nathan told David that you shall not build the king you shall not build the, the temple your son Solomon will build the temple these are the three requisites and so I want you to see this applied in this is the end goal the end game of of Israel to appoint a king well who is the king Israel has already given us the king it's Christ Jesus the Messiah the Mashiach of Israel he is the king Number two is to exterminate Amalek. Amalek is also anti-Christ. So what's the so the very every generation is going to face Amalek. In in the 1930s and 40s, the Amalek was was Hitler. Was and, and in in the days of the Maccabean revolt, the the antichrist was Antiochus uh, Antiochus the fourth. So every generation is going to face an Amalek. 
and um, the final Amalek is going to be Antichrist himself. So, and he, this Amalek will be destroyed. This Antichrist will be destroyed by the by the Mashiach, by the Messiah of Israel, by Christ Jesus himself. And, and that will take place at the Battle of of Gog and Magog. And the third requisite is to build the temple. Now. And I'll talk to you about this in more detail later. This, uh, the temple topic is a very complex topic, and we'll talk about this uh, at a future time. One thing, uh, uh, I'll just leave you with this about the temple. I do not believe the temple is going to be rebuilt before Messiah returns. I mean, imagine what would take place in the land of Israel if, 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 if Israel were, were, were to attempt to build where, 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 um, where the mosque stands right now. I mean, World War Three. World War Three would break out, and um, the rabbis believe that the third temple will not be built until Messiah comes, and that's my opinion as well. It will not begin until Messiah comes. And the question I want to bring out one thing is because, especially during this three-week period, you know, because uh, I want this teaching not just to be a teaching of history and a, and a teaching of end time events. I want this teaching to be prophetic and I want you to be able to apply this word in your lives today. And the secret to coming out of exile is through building God's house. Let me give an example. When, uh, you know, the, the Jews came out of exile when they were given the edict and the, and the, 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 uh, the, the door was open for them to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls and to rebuild the temple. As we see through the work of Ezra in Nehemiah, with 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 the, with the um, rebuilding of the sep, you know, for, for, for the rebuilding, and then we also see it in the days of the Maccabees, in the Maccabean revolt, where the Hashemonians uh, took back the temple in Jerusalem and and rededicated it to God. The way you come out of your exile is to burn with a holy fire for God and for the things of God, and to build God's house. So, example, when we bring our tithes and offerings into the storehouse. We are rebuilding God's house. When we, when we offer our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2, guess what we're doing? We are building God's house. When we, when, we, when we repent from sin, we are building God's house. When we perform acts of loving kindness, we are rebuilding God's house. When we focus on the needs of others, even beyond our immediate family, we are rebuilding God's house. Does that make sense? So the secret of the secret to coming out of your own bondage is to build God's house. You know, if if you're fighting de depression, you're, if you're fighting anxiety, if you're fighting in, in, in you know you're in your own personal battles with your family and your marriages and and, and whatever else, the the way out of those exiles because each one of these circumstances is a form of exile is to focus on the things of God. And that is, and that's really the first step to coming out of your personal exile. You know, sometimes I turn a blind eye to, to my present condition, to my present suffering, and I focus on the things of God, even even things as such as preparing for a Torah teaching for a Monday night class, and I and I take my eyes off things of the world and put my eyes on the things of God and often what I find and, and, and then, then I go back to my problems afterward but uh, but what I do I need to change my focus and put my eyes on the things of God first Amen Alright so um, we're going to talk about I'm just checking the time real quick I did start a little bit late today so we'll um, I want to take you into the four exiles 
that were prophesied in the creation. Um, and can you all stay with me for about another 15, 20 minutes or so? And then, then we'll wrap up. Wonderful. Thank you for that. I want to talk about the four exiles. You remember I, shared, I began the teaching. I talked about the four exiles that were prophesied over the, over the Jewish people. Well, I want to tell, show you that the exiles were not just, I want to show you the exiles were actually prophesied in Genesis chapter one. And what I'm going to do here is I'm going to overlay Daniel, the, the, the several scriptures in the book of Daniel and overlay them with Genesis chapter one, verse two. And this is a form of, this is a form of teaching using a type of study called inter, intertextuality. And I'm going to use intertextuality to, 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 to bring out the concept of the exiles. Because everything that ever took place in, 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 in human history is already prophesied in God's word. So like, so let's look at Daniel chapter two. And if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to flip back and forth with me. Just keep one, you know, keep a bookmark in Daniel chapter two and keep a bookmark in Genesis chapter one. So let's read Genesis, I'm sorry, not Genesis. Let's read Daniel chapter 2, verse 32 and verse 33. And it reads, The head of this image was of fine gold, its breast and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And we're going to spend, we're going to spend uh, quite a bit of time on these verses here, or at least I'm going to allude to them, I'm going to allude to this scripture over the next couple of weeks. That this is a dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar, and God used Daniel to interpret the dream. One thing that's very unusual about this dream is the king had the dream, but he would not reveal the dream to anybody. He basically made he he required that the person interpreting the dream would also speak the dream and then give the interpretation. I mean, can, can you imagine being asked by someone to interpret your dream, but not only interpret your dream, but also to tell you what you dreamt? That's exactly what King Nebuchadnezzar did. And so Daniel not only interpreted the dream, which we're going we're gonna to actually read through, read through the interpretation, he also told the king what he dreamt. And he told the king that you dreamt of a head, of an image whose head was of pure gold, breast and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Now, when you look at this, what I want you to notice, the, fi the finest substance is, at the, is in the head. And then as you, as you look down this, this figure of this image, it's it, the, the the most valuable things are at the top. So the gold is the most valuable. So we see all the gold in the in the head, and then we have a a, a, a cheaper metal, the, the the silver, which is the breast and arms, and then we see a substance that's even less valuable, the iron, which is in the legs, and then we see the feet, which is something we see two substances together that don't really mix together. You know, iron and clay don't really cleave to each other i mean it just partly cleaves but it, but it's 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 very it's very brittle and i really want you to remember that so the the the, the most valuable things at the top in the head and the least valuable is in the feet and then we look at now let's look at daniel chapter 7 verse 2 and 3 because what you're going to see is 
the prophecies of Daniel, and this is what I've begun to see as I've been studying, is we see the very general in, in, the, in Daniel chapter 2, and then we get very specific as, as Daniel has more night visions and dreams. And, 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 and that's how God deals with us when he gives us prophecies. He'll be, begin with a very general prophecy, because we see through a glass dimly, or through a mirror dimly, and then later on you'll get the specifics. And that's how God is dealing with Daniel. And then in verse 2 of Daniel chapter 7, Daniel 7, verse 2 and 3. And Daniel said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Now, now you see here, you see four beasts. Can, do you all see that? Daniel 7, we see four beasts. But in Daniel chapter 2, we see an image with four parts, from the head down to the feet. But you see that we see the head of fine gold. That's the first beast described in Daniel 7. And then we see the breast and arms of silver. That's the second beast in Daniel 7. And then we see legs of iron. That's the third beast that we see in, in Daniel 7. And then we see its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. That's the fourth beast that we see in Daniel chapter 7. Do you all see that? And Jennifer, I do see your question about the color. Uh, we'll, we'll, get that, we'll get to that in a future teaching. That's an excellent question. Now let's get to Genesis chapter 1, chapter, uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And it reads like this. Because Moses, who's the author of the first five books of the Bible, uh, he, he's prophesying here. You know, for those of you that have my book, The Final Countdown, um, I, I describe Genesis chapter 1 m m more from a non-prophetic perspective. I talk about creation in a literal sense. But now I'm going to speak to you about Genesis 1-2 from a prophetic sense. Because when you read Genesis, when you read Genesis chapter 1, it reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens is the spiritual realms, and the earth is not just the physical earth, it's the entire universe. It's the physical creation. But in addition, Moses is teaching us prophecy and teaching us spiritual concepts. Does that make sense? And that's why studying Revelation is so difficult for us, because we're not just studying about time, and we're not just studying about end-time events. We're studying spiritual concepts as well. So we're studying about things that were, things that are, things that will be. And we're also studying about um, um, spiritual concepts as well. So, that, so, uh, so we're, we're, we are all becoming so prophetic when we study God's Word. And especially when we study God's Word from, from a rabbinic perspective, it's going to open up your senses in so many different ways. And you're going to be so, God, God's going to be speaking to you and God's going, to, God's going to be revealing His ways and His plans to you in such incredible ways. I mean, you cannot help it but become prophetic. You're going to say things, you're going to have thoughts, and you're going to wonder where they came from. Well, God's going to deposit them into your spirit because you have been studying His Word in, in, in a deep way. Does, does that make sense? So let's read Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and I think I saw it posted on the screen. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving upon the face of the waters. 
Now remember when we when we read Daniel chapter seven, we read about the four winds that were stirred up, uh, uh, that were stirring up the great sea. So there's some there's some relationship between the great sea and the waters we see in Genesis one. See, these are not physical waters. Th these are things that are taking place in the realm of the spirit. Now there are four things mentioned here in Genesis one two. The earth was without form. Can you say that with me? The earth was without form. That was a prophecy about the first exile of the Jewish people, the Babylonian exile, the head of gold. That's the first exile. The second exile is called the void. Can you say void with me? Because it says the earth was without form and void. Void is the is the second and third ex, is the second exile, which is an exile of t by two kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians. And then it says darkness. The darkness represents the Greek exile. And the fourth exile is the face of the deep. That's the Roman exile, and that's the deepest, the dark, the darkest exile of the Jewish people. Let, let, let me give you an idea of how severe this exile is. Remember the first exile is without form, the Babylonian exile. How many years did that exile last? It lasted for 70 years. And it was under, it was under, um, Zer, it, was, it was under Cyrus that, that the edict was given to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So it was, it was a 70 year exile. And, and then when we see the third exile, that darkness of the Greek exile, that that's in relation to to uh, Alexander the Great conquering the Holy Land, and then after Alexander the Great, his four sons, the, the four generals. Actually, I'm not sure there were sons, but uh, but four of his leaders, four, four four of his generals, took took over the kingdom. Not not his sons, but four generals. Four of his generals took over and split the kingdom into four parts. And so that's the darkness. And the fourth exile is the face of the deep, the Roman exile. Remember I told you the first exile lasted 70 years? Well, guess how long this, the fourth exile has lasted? It has lasted for almost 2,000 years. And that exile will not end until Messiah comes. So when Messiah comes, the Roman exile will come to an end. Now there are many opinions about what the Roman exile represents. But one thing I want to leave you with here, most of the opinions that you may have read about what Rome is, I, I really believe is, is, is wrong. I believe the, Rome, the Roman exile is much deeper. We, we can't really put Rome on a certain nation. We can't put Rome on a certain church denomination. We cannot put the title Rome, um, for, for again, as, as, as being any nation that's on the earth, any particular nation. It, it's, it's something much deeper than that. And Rome represents the face of the deep. And, and, and there are even some folks that call um, a certain religion, um, a certain, uh, uh, I, I won't say on this, on, on, this, on, on this Facebook broadcast tonight, but there are some folks that believe that, that there's another religion that represents, the, the, represents Rome. And I believe all those opinions are, are wrong. And we'll, we'll dive more into that over the next coming weeks. But I just want to whet your appetite a little bit, and we'll, we'll, we'll dive into these in future teachings. Now, there's a rabbi known as the Abarbanel. And this rabbi said, everything the world goes through was, was set from the onset of creation. 
So everything that mankind will experience was already mentioned in the onset of creation. And I believe that to be true because right here in Genesis 1-2, we see a prophetic word about the four future exiles of the Jewish people. Without form equals Babylon. Void is Medes and Persians. Darkness represents the Greeks. And face of the deep represents Rome. Now, let's talk about Rome. Let's talk about Babylon for a second. Bab according to the Midrash, Babylon is also known as a place of, of, of being desolate. Without form means without, means desolate. In Hebrew, it, it, the, the earth was without form and void. It's tohu and bohu. It was a place of indistinguishable ruin. And Babylon represents, it represents a force in the soul, but we'll talk about that later. It's also represented by, by, by a lion, and, and it represents King Nebuchadnezzar. Babylon, the Babylonian kingdom was probably the most powerful kingdom in the entire world. And it was probably the most, uh, it probably had the most majesty of any of the future kingdoms. It was probably the strongest of all the kingdoms. But after Babylon, after, after Nebuchadnezzar's rule, comes, comes Persia. It comes the, the, the Medes and the Persians. And the the you know Amir said Babylon represents the the, uh, the the it represents the exile of the soul. The the Persian exile represents the um, the physical. It represents our desires. And what what took place in the Persian exile is that the, an exile of our of our of our desires took place. And what took place was now we re we we replace our pleasure in in the things of God. We, we replace our pleasure in God's word and replace it with earthly pleasures. You know, look at Esther chapter 1, because when Mordecai wrote the book of Esther, he wrote it in code. When the Jews read the book of Esther, they, they understood it to be, a, a, they understood it to be a, a rebuke for not returning back to Jerusalem to rebuild. But to the Persians reading the book, they read it as a book of the greatness of their kingdom and the pleasures of their kingdom. I mean, look at the 120-day feast of, of, of drunkenness in the book of Esther. And there's so much focus spent upon earthly pleasures. And that is the exile of Persia, is that we get more desire, more pleasure in the things of the world rather than the things of God. And so that's, that's the darkness of the Persian exile. Because each exile it, it is a systematic program to remove godliness from your lives. And Satan used these four exiles to, to remove spirituality from the Jewish people. But you know what? He's going to fail. And he is failing. And he has failed. So the second exile is, is an exile of pleasure. Replacing pleasure in God and, and, and with pleasure for worldly things. The third exile is the, dar is, is the darkness of Greece. And Greece represents the power of the human intellect. You know, it's no surprise that we have Socrates and Aristotle and all the great philosophers coming from the Greek culture. And, and, it's, and, and what this exile attempts to do is replace Torah knowledge, replace knowledge of God's word, replace the philosophies of God's word, and, and replace it with, earth, with earthly wisdom. And that's the darkness of Greece. And, all, and, and much of modern science, and, and really probably all the disciplines of the world today, are based upon what we receive from, 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 from the Greek culture. It's not a bad thing, but when it's used to replace God's word, 
that's when you enter the danger zone. And then the fourth kingdom is called what we call the face of the deep in Genesis one two. Um, it's also called the abyss by the um, by the by by the the midrashic commentaries. And it's a reference to the fourth and final exile of the Jewish people. And this is led. I'm going to just read this to you. It's a wicked, ferocious empire led by a brazen king. And it's speaking about an iron. It, it speaks about the most wicked of all kingdoms. And this this is the kingdom that's going to be that's going to be in the bar, in the battle of Armageddon. And, and that's a, it's a reference to Gog and Magog. Now let's look at as I conclude here, and I would I would I would I would like to get through this one portion here before we close here tonight. Actually, you know what? I'm gonna actually, yeah, um, yeah. I'll go, I'll go ahead and just take you through this. I was actually debating whether I should save this for next week. Alrighty, so let's look at Babylon. Let's look at Daniel chapter two verses thirty-seven and thirty-eight. I'll just give you a, uh, just give you a high-level overview, and then we'll we'll dive in a little deeper next week. Babylon is described in, Gen in Daniel chapter two verse thirty-seven and thirty-eight, and it says, "You, O King, the King of Kings, to whom the God of Heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand He has given." Wherever they dwell, the sons of men, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the air, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. So Daniel is prophesying to Nebuchadnezzar that you are the head of gold. So, so this very first beast, that, I mean, not the beast here, but the, the head of gold represents the Babylonian kingdom. And then verse 4, it says, The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand upon two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. And what this describes is, it, de it describes the transformation of the Babylonian kingdom. At first, it was like a ferocious lion and it had eagle's, it had eagle's wings. And it means that it, it, it quickly conquered the earth and it conquered the holy land. And it took, it took the Israelites captive into Babylon. It was extremely powerful. But eventually its wings were removed and it, it was made to stand upon two feet like a man. And what that prophetic word is, is that Babylon lost its ferocity and it, and, and it, and it, it became, it, it, it stood on the earth like a man. So it, it, it didn't have the same power that it had earlier. Its kingdom was established, so so we see it acting like like a man. So that's the first kingdom. Then the second kingdom is is, is actually a, a two uh, two two kingdoms, that, and they they took turns ruling the Medes and the Persians in Daniel chapter two verse thirty nine. And after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to you. Remember, we go from higher degree of of um, value to lesser degrees of value. The second kingdom of Medes and Persians has less value. It's it's the 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 arms and the breast of of um, of, of of silver, and you and you shall arise after after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze. So the second kingdom is the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, and the third kingdom, the kingdom of bronze, represents the the Greek kingdom. Then now let's look at Daniel chapter seven verse five. What you can see here is I'm using Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, 
I'm using Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. I'm using three different references to explain uh, the concept of the four exiles. So Daniel 7.5 says, And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And it's speaking about the Medes and Persians. And then look, let's look at verse 3 of Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. And I raised up my eyes and saw and behold a ram standing on the bank of the river. It had two horns. The, two, the, 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 the ram with two horns represents the Medes and Persians. Because, because they were, they were two kingdoms that took, that alternate, alternatively, um, ruled. And so those are the two horns. So, so we, we see, we see the ram, we see here a ram with two horns. That represents the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. But then look on, then it says in verse four, I saw a ram charging westward and northward and southward and no beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and magnified himself. This is a prophecy about Greece. It's, it's a prophecy of Alexander the Great. And I believe that Alexander the Great, I mean, he finished his conquering, I think, by the time he was, he was 30 years old. And I, I mean, he was so so ferocious, and 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 so that that's the third kingdom. And then when we go to um, Daniel chapter seven verse six, we we, we uh, actually I'm gonna actually stop there. But what I want to see you is with each kingdom, with each horn, what we see taking place is we 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 see. An increase in in the ferociousness, we we see that what each exile attempts to do is to remove a different sense of godliness from from from, from God's people. And I'm going to spend more time next week's focusing on the spiritual parts. But one thing I want to leave you with here is is that we we are in an end time battle, and the spirits that we are fighting these in in, in these end days are more ferocious than any of the spirits that we fought previously. So we are living in the very last of days, in the end of days. And I just want, I want you to know is that God is going to equip you to fight these end time battles. Because we, we are fighting antichrist spirits. We, we, are, we are fighting things that we've never encountered before. We are encountering, encountering um, a level of warfare that none of the church prior to us has, has ever faced. But I want you to know is that it, God is fortifying you, God is strengthening you, God is equipping you to fight this end time battle. Because I believe what God, what's going to take place in this earth here is that the, that the level of tribulation that's going to take place in the earth is, is, so, is so strong that many are going to forsake their faith in God. That's the greatest temptation of these end times. Because the Roman exile, the, the exile described by Daniel and, and, and by Moses, is an, this, this exile is an exile that's going to cause people to lose all hope in God. And as you see even in the book of Revelation, after each plague, we see a group of people that never repent, but they become harder and harder and harder and harder. But I, I, I encourage all of you to resist the temptation to become lukewarm. 
In Revelation, you see how Jesus rebuked the church of Laodicea. I think in very many ways, uh, 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 the church today represent, is represented by Laodicea because we're we, we're becoming very um, it's like we've 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 become immune to calamity because every single day we're used to hearing about calamity. We're used to hearing about wars taking place in the earth. You know, we hear about the conflict between India and China, and it's no big deal because we're used to hearing about it. We hear about all the killing in the Middle East, and it doesn't bother us anymore because we're used to it. We hear about all uh, we hear about all the babies that, that are being uh, killed through abortion, and it doesn't bother us anymore because we have become immune. But what I encourage all of you to do is to lose that immunity, because we need to feel the pain of others. We need to learn how to intercede and fall on our faces before God for others. Exactly, we we need to resist the tendency towards becoming lukewarm and we need to set we need to become on fire for god like never before because i'm telling you uh, an, another reason why we see destruction in the first and second temple is that people became lukewarm in their service to god they performed their service just as an act of 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 requirement but but their heart was not in it and they, they had no passion in what they were doing and what I encourage you to do is to return to God whole, wholeheartedly. If you're a preacher, I encourage you to start preaching with heartfelt devotion and love for God's word and love for God's people. Wherever you are in life, I encourage you to perform your service with so much love and so much zeal. And to return to your first love and to, to return to your love for Christ.